on the screen right now. Pull out your phones because this has happened in every service. So just my preemptive strike right now. Uh, on the screen, you will see all the books that I have read cover to cover on the subject matter that we are going to be venturing into today. If you are a guest with us, can we put our hands together for all of our first time guests? Okay. Um, if you were invited and your friend invited you without telling you the subject matter, uh, you might want to reevaluate that relationship. Um, and uh, I want to just let you know that today is some big subject matter that we're going to be uh, engaging in today. So before all of these books, I would say that the Bible is the first thing I've read on this stuff, okay? Um, it is first in order and in priority to all of these other things. However, I want you to see that um, I am well-read and well-versed in the subject matter that we're going to be talking about today. Um, when it comes to a theological and doctrinal perspective on this, there's some fantastic books in here. I'll give you a heads up. One that's not in here is A People to Be Loved by Preston Sprinkle. It's a book that everybody should read. Such a gracious approach to uh, the truth of these issues. Uh, one of my favorite books is uh, the one right here, uh, The Genesis of Gender. Uh, it is actually probably in my top 10 books ever read, ever. Uh, same with The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, top 10 books I have ever read. But the genesis of gender, she's Catholic, so I don't agree on her uh, uh, eschatology and salvation stuff. But there's obviously some shared concepts that are there. And she is a beautiful writer and I think has written what is a uh, triumphant masterpiece when it comes to speaking about the body and especially when it comes to gender. Uh, Christians in the Wake of the Sexual Evolution, uh, that one's a bit antiquated. There's a lot of stuff we're dealing with now that's not necessarily in that book. That's more of a morality, ethical uh, space. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, what, what does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? Fantastic book uh, when it comes to, if you want to know just straight up doctrine, truth, scriptures, the whole nine yards, uh, make sure that you grab that. End of Sexual Identity is one of the books of a couple that don't go with my perceived, uh, not perceived, the truth that I anchor into doctrinally and theologically. Um, it's a different, but I read stuff so I'm well-versed in the other sides of the conversation. Is that all right with everybody? Um, okay, so here's the ground rules for subject matter like this. I'm going to spend the lion's share of this message, which is a long message today. Y'all with me? Come on, students. Everybody sit up straight in your chairs today. Um, we're going to spend a while in academic territory. Um, there's going to be terminology and stuff that I'm going to use. We're going to explore scriptures. We're going to look at what I'm going to call revisionist or um, progressive theologians' thoughts about this. They're going to offer us, though, some really great admissions that I think are important for us to hear. So we're going to stay academic. And then I've got two statements that I want to make at the end. Simple as that. Um, that will bring us back up kind of to the surface. So we're going to dig deep today. So I need you to stay locked in with me logically for a while. Does that work with everybody? And um, I want to ask you to uh, don't do not do the what about stuff in your head. Okay, well, what about this? What about that? Just listen to what I'm saying today. First Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. Paul, the apostle writing. And this is what he says to the church at Corinth. He says, everything is permissible for me. Now, if we study scripture, you're going to see two quotations around that. It's because Paul is highlighting a thought from the day, from their culture, from their society. So then he's going to argue. He's going to say, yeah, but not everything is beneficial. And so society and the world's going to say, everything is permissible for me. Paul's going to say, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. It was another idiom or an axiom of the day where people were processing their morality and their ethics through. And he's going to say, but God will do away with both of them. Okay. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord 
and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Emphatically, he says it. Exclamation point. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against, this is important, sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And I want you to hear this today. You are not your own. For you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. We're going to examine this text in depth in just a bit. But today as we continue on in our series, Tethered, I want to speak to you from the subject today, sexuality and gender identity. Temples for glory. As we look at what God says about our sexuality, our gender, our identity, and the theology, really important one, the theology of our bodies. We pray with me just one more time today. Father, I thank you for your word today. It is alive, it's active, and it's powerful. Speak to us right now. God, if there is any offensive way in me, I pray that you would renew a right spirit within me. That today I would be able to communicate the truth of your word with integrity and with character and humility, God. No one needs Jason's words on this. We need your words. So speak so loudly and so clearly to us today. We love you and we honor you in this place in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, and the church shouted. And the church shouted. Amen. I want you to imagine with me for a moment a young girl who doesn't quite fit the mold of femininity. She likes to dress more comfortably, favoring jeans and baggy t-shirts over more fitting and, and feminine outfits. She tends to be athletic and escapes from the world of ridicule and bullying through her sport, which she excels in. And through an Instagram account she follows, she's told that because of her behaviors and the social reality that she faces, maybe she has simply been born in the wrong body and that there are ways to change that. I want you to imagine a young man who finds himself exceptional in the arts, dance, drama, and singing. And because of this, he joins his ninth grade drama class to hone in on his gift. It's in that class that he meets another young man who has the same interests and likes. He finds himself accepted, understood, and desired in a way like never before. This would be the first time that he would face the feelings that he's often tried to bury all of these years. What would his mom say? What would his dad say? Who's already frustrated that his only son doesn't like sports or what he would call manly things. Or think about the 20-year-old college student who on the outside looks like she has it all together. She keeps her grades intact, she works a job, and seems exceptionally social. But she's hidden her secret really well with long sleeves, even during the summer. She's buried her feelings and desires for so long out of fear and familial and friend rejection that the only way she knows how to feel anything is to cut herself. Think about the mom and the dad who have now been sitting on the couch for hours trying to process the news that they've just been given, that their boy that they brought into the world, named, loved, nurtured, and raised, no longer wants the name that was given. The name that was prayed over through tears of love and joy. The name is now to be changed to support their son who believes that he is something else. For some of us, this is an incredibly... This is incredibly hard to imagine. 
And yet for others, these stories are entirely too close to home. These scenarios are not hard for me to imagine as I have heard these stories and many others. And these stories even potentially represent people that will find themselves in one of our services today. And yet these stories tell the stories of friends, loved ones, co-workers, and family members. I want to acknowledge today that when it comes to the subject of sexuality and gender identity, there are great degrees of complexity and pain surrounding this area. As Preston Sprinkle, author of A People to Be Loved, embodied and does the Bible support same-sex marriage, he writes this, when you have met one gay, lesbian, or transgender person, you have met one gay, lesbian, or transgender person. The message that Preston is trying to convey is that no one story or experience is the same. And this is what makes this subject matter complex and often very painful. Regarding sex and sexuality and our identity, we must acknowledge that we are working through heavy ideas. And for those of us who would sit in this room today and say, man, I just don't know if the church is an appropriate place to navigate conversations like this, I would with respect disagree with you greatly. I believe that the church is the best place to work through subject matter as such. Which brings us to an important question. Why do we care about this issue? Does God care about this issue? Does the Bible really have anything to say about any of this? Shouldn't Christians just keep their nose in their own business? Who cares what people do with their sexuality? I want to take us to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. This is where we need to begin in order to answer some of these questions. Paul's going to be writing to a young leader named Timothy, who's been placed in charge of a budding congregation It's growing, it's mixed up in its culture, it's feeling the impact of cultural change and progression. And and so Paul's going to write to encourage him to keep on the path, to keep going. And he says this in verse 6, he says, Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they're saying or what they're insisting on. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinful, for the unholy and uh, irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and males who have sex with males, for slave traders, for liars, for perjurers, and just so that everybody is included into this for whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. That conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. It's in this section of scripture, Paul would use a really important word for us to focus on. And the word is this, arsenokoites. It is a two-part word consisting of arson meaning man and koite meaning bed, literally meaning betters of men. This is an important word for us today because when it comes to the issue of homosexuality, it's an obvious and precise word that helps us navigate the validity and impact of the Bible's prohibition against all acts of homosexuality. Now, from the revisionist or the progressive standpoint, and I use it as a designation, as a type of theologian that we are seeing now who are trying to revise what the Bible has said, or they're progressing into a new place that is outside of scripture's influence. From a revisionist or progressive standpoint, such prohibitions are interpreted as invalid. They don't believe that the Bible says what it says because the term homosexuality in English was not a valid word in that cultural moment in time. 
as well, revisionist and progressive commentators would suggest that where the issue of homosexuality is brought up scripturally, it is within the framework of non-consenting behavior. Okay? Non-consenting behavior that is unwanted and perpetrated within a power dynamic, specifically between men and young boys. It was predatory in nature, therefore making the injunction against homosexuality null and void. Now I'm going to ask the question, are you all with me right now? Yes. Okay, we're going to stay in this space for a while. I'll ask this a few times to make sure that you're logically clicked in with me. Okay, what are the implications of this? Well, the implications of this idea are vast in nature, but really focus on the concept of affirming homosexual activity within the confines of a loving and committed relationship between two people of the same sex. So what I'm saying by this is that from a revisionist or progressive standpoint, when they look at these scriptures that we're going to be reading, they like to say that it's null and void. This, this is actually not the Bible creating a prohibition against same-sex acts, but really is speaking to a different issue that where two people of the same sex, if they were to marry, then it's okay. Okay. This is their idea. This is their concept. And while I make the concession that the term homosexual is a term that was not employed and has since been added to the translation of Bible into the English for the English purpose, the word that is used to describe its nature and its subsequent prohibition is found within scripture and means what it means. One subscripture where this argument is used is found in Romans chapter one, verses 21 through to 27. Paul writing, he says, for they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise. Come on, how many of us have ever done that before? They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among, them, among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. Speaking to this specific scripture and issue, the late Lewis Crompton, who is a gay man and a forerunner in queer studies, writes what is a significant admission in his book, Homosexuality and Civilization. Listen to what he writes. He says, some interpreters seeking to mitigate Paul's harshness have read the passage in Romans 1 as condemning not homosexuals generally, but only heterosexual men and women who experimented with homosexuality. According to this interpretation, Paul's words were not directed at homosexuals in, a committed, in committed relationships. Now listen to this, what he says. This is important for us to grab. But such a reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstances. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or early Christian. 
We also have Dutch scholar Pim Pronk, who identifies as a gay man, who in working with many Christians who would like to see the issue of homosexuality supported in the Bible, this is what he writes. In this case, and I'll clarify, he, um, he writes in a, in a way that can be a little bit clunky. I'll, I'll bring clarity in just a minute. He says, in this case, the support is lacking. Whenever homosexual intercourse is mentioned in scripture, it is condemned. Rejection is a foregone conclusion. The assessment of it nowhere, nowhere constitutes a problem. So what he's saying is that as we assess these things from a historical backdrop, we actually can't agree. We can't disagree with what the Bible is saying, that the Bible holds to a monogamous relationship between man and woman in the context of marriage or the issue of celibacy where our sex is submitted unto God. Y'all with me still? Furthermore, I want to read one more quote by a man named Luke Timothy Johnson. He is a well-respected New Testament scholar who supports homosexual behavior and has a revisionist and progressive view on sexual ethics. This is what he writes. Listen, I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture. And we appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal, we appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and at the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way which God has created us. I appreciate his candor and honesty regarding this issue, regarding the authority of scripture. These quotes, among many others, acknowledge the fact, here it is, that no serious theologians, scholars, and even historians consider the Bible's prohibition of same-sex relationships and intimacy to be anything but prohibited. Are you all with me still? Let's look at a few other biblical words that are important to this conversation. Here's what the relevant texts look like in the Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of the Old Testament used by the Jews in the first century. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 22 to 23. You shall not lie with the male as with a woman. It's an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with. It is perversion. Verse 22, you'll see up on the screen, is once again here are these words that help us see from an Old Testament perspective the connective tissue between the New Testament. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Verse 13, once again, you'll see the, the construction of these sentences to highlight the continuity between both testaments of our Bible. Now, what we must understand is that while we are just scratching the surface with our understanding of these words, what they are presenting to us is a truth that is to be assimilated into each of our lives. And this is the truth. The Bible is very clear about the lived expression and sexual ethic of our lives. Here it is, as believers. Now I want to pause here for just a second and make us aware, like I said last week, is that when it comes to what it is that we're having a conversation about in here today, is I'm not standing up here shouting at the world what to do with their sexual ethic. Okay? The world is going to do what the world is going to do. But here's what I am doing. As your pastor... And as we pastor this church, we are creating clarity around the ethical and moral lanes of our social, of our, of our church when it comes to sex and sexuality. Does that make sense to everybody? And this is very, very important for us to understand. Okay. And even with strong words such as these found in scripture, 
there is still a hard push for individual expressiveness and deviation from an orthodox sexual ethic. You can go to Google and instantly you will be met with countless personal blogs and papers written to try to affirm positions that are, well, not affirmed in scripture. We can try and say that the words are wrong. Paul was biased or the transliteration of the Bible is outdated and, and incorrect in light of societal progression. But still, once again, we would be arguing from a weak and uninformed and albeit arrogant position. Can I please implore everybody, don't get your theology and doctrine off of TikTok. If anybody claims that they can do in a minute and 30 seconds what theologians over thousands of years have been working on, I would say delete that post. It is so much more than what many of us are buying into. If somebody believes that they can solve all of these things in, 100 and th in 130 characters or a minute and a half, it's dangerous territory. Kevin DeYoung, author of What Does the Bible Really Say About Homosexuality, puts it like this. The English translations are almost always right, especially when they basically say the same thing. Now, in this quote, he's going to speak to the, he's going to reference the words that we've talk, just talked about in nine different translations of the Bible. Those would be our mainline transla uh, translations of the Bible. King James, New King James, NIV, uh, ESV, CSB, NASB. Uh, there's a few more that you can like NIV revise. Like there's lots of, lots of different translations. He's not talking about the passion and the message book. Okay. That's different. So about these mainline transla uh, translations, this is what he says. Think about it. Each of the nine translations listed above was put together by a team of scholars with expertise in biblical scholarship and the original languages. That doesn't mean that we can't make mistakes or that we can't learn new things missed, but it does mean that after reading a few commentaries and perusing a couple articles online, you will certainly not know the ancient world of Koine Greek better than they did. If translators thought a specific word really meant X, as seminary students and bloggers are apt to say, they wouldn't have translated it Y. Their integrity as biblical commentators and speakers of this original language is at risk by doing anything other than what they are looking at and dealing with from a, from a, uh, from a definition point of view and from a language point of view. Y'all with me? Okay. Our English translations, he goes on to say, imperfect though they may be, are faithful and reliable translations of the original languages. They do not need decoding. In other words, propping up conspiracy theories, unfettered biases to minimize what the Bible says about our sexual ethics is not just short-sighted, but it is intellectually dishonest. And while there are ways that we have to work through biblical content, consider context, culture, and audience, which Pastor Howie and I are going to do in a few weeks as we, as we uh, come face-to-face -face with the issue of women in ministry, okay? Where there's universal agreement on an issue across the entirety of the Bible, both Testaments, there's not much more to say about it. As we can see, the Bible does not mince words regarding the issue of homosexuality. This ethic, which is presented to us biblically, would be the same ethic that is applied to the issue of transgenderism as well. However, there is an added element that we must acknowledge regarding the transgender conversation. It's this, the issue of identity. Everybody shout identity. identity. You all with me still? Yeah. All right. Within our Christian framework, church, within our Christian belief, we have what is understood as the theology of the body. 
This theology, oh, listen to me, is carried on the wings of the psalmist declaration found in Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. Listen to what is written. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret. When I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me as I was formless. All my days are written in your book and plan before a single one of them has begun. Can I just say this over all of us? It doesn't matter where you are at today. You must know that you are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. So speaking to this truth, the famed author C.S. Lewis would write this. In fact, however, the value of an individual does not lie in him. Listen to this. He is capable of receiving value. He receives it by union with Christ. There is no question of finding for him a place in the living temple which will do justice to his inherent value and give scope to his natural idiosyncrasy. The palace was there first. The man was created for it. He will not be himself till he is there. We shall be true and everlasting and really divine persons in heaven, just as we are even now colored bodies only in the light. What a profound statement. What a beautiful, beautiful statement. The body matters. We must acknowledge this. And what we do with the body matters. This truth is highlighted for us in 1 Corinthians 6. I want to just read verse 19 because this is Paul's crescendo in his acknowledgement that the body matters. He says this, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. Let's go. Everybody can say amen right there. Okay. I give you permission in that part right there. You're not your own. So what do we do with our bodies? Well, scripture tells us that we glorify God with our body. Now, what we must understand, let's sink back into academics for a second. What we must understand about this section of scripture is that Paul was battling a wind of teaching that was causing confusion in the church. This was the teaching of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a philosophy of the day rooted in Greek teaching and philosophy that taught a dualistic and detached view of selfhood. This teaching specifically separated the person or the soul from the body, producing an ethic of unbound discretionary measure over what someone would do with their body. The body, here it is right here. The body was seen in a utilitarian and non-sacred way. Two ditches were created from this teaching. The first ditch was this, the ditch of asceticism which deemed the body as evil and therefore it must be rid of its appetites. This legalistic or or inherently pessimistic view of the body led to what would be known as the monastic movement. And for the monastics, there's a group of people known as the desert fathers. They were known as monastics. And to them, the body was a thing to be punished. And so what they would do is they would wander off into the desert. They would create a commune and they would try to run away from the, what they would deem as fleshly desires of their body. Here was the problem. When they showed up in the desert, they were still there. Because how many of you know where you are, you are there. 
And so they realized once they got in the desert, they were like, oh, snap, the desert doesn't take these things away. The desert doesn't heal me from the things that are inside of my flesh. So that's the first ditch, the ditch of asceticism. The second ditch that was created was the ditch of indulgence. This idea is captured in the quote that Paul uses to highlight in Corinthians that we read at the beginning, at that time, the slogan of the day, everything is permissible for me. I can do what I want to do. This was the idea that rather to, to deny the body of its appetites, one should rather indulge every one of them because the body was separate from the soul. And so bodily indulgences would have no lasting impact on the person. How many of you know that there's many things that we've done with our body that many of us are still living with today? But Gnosticism separated these realities. Gnosticism made our bodies either inherently evil or inherently utilitarian. Okay? Both of these ditches were and, in, and are in opposition to biblical understanding when it comes to the theology of the body. To live within the lanes of our faith and our followership of Christ, one must acknowledge a couple different things. Write these down if you're taking notes today because it's important. And some of you might be changed right now in Jesus' name as to how you view yourself when you hear these things. Here's the first one. If we are going to be Christ followers, we have to inherently see that the body is good. The body's good. We must see ourselves as integrated and not disintegrated. We must see the given nature of the body from God. And we must realize that the purpose of the body is to glorify God with it. Now, one more critical scripture found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, says this, Paul writing, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age. Do not be conformed to this age, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. Lutheran theologian, August Frederick Christian Vilmar, what a name, said this, as a human being, a person is a whole, not a body without a spirit or a spirit without a body. Thus, the whole unitary person is the object of all God's acts from the bestowal of dominion over the earth to the resurrection of the dead and the end of the world. Nobody acts with just one part of the self. When somebody thinks, that person actually thinks with the body. And every bodily function is also the same time a function of the soul and the spirit. What is he talking about? He's talking about personal integration. Are you all with me still? Oh, it's getting less. Okay, let's try this one more time. Are you all with me still? Okay. Remember, lots of academics here. Here's why I'm doing this. Pause. I feel like this message is a Jenga tower. And if I pull one block of this information that I've prepared for you, then it leans one direction or the other that I don't want it to lean in. If I pull one of these blocks of information out, it leans into a diatribe of just things that I think about stuff and why the world's bad and everything like this and it's all going to burn down. But if I, if I go this way and I pull another block of this information, then I lean into this place where you potentially walk away and go, what do they actually really believe? And I don't want to do that. I want us to look at this thing and understand where Bible is very clear on these issues. Y'all with me? And I want us to understand that we're not just coming to this thing from an emotional place, but rather an informed place that is, 
that is biblical in nature. Is that a good pause? We are good? All right, keep going with me. Much of what we are facing today is simply modern Gnosticism. It's the idea that I can define who I am and then if need be, construct the body to match that feeling or idea. The authority enacted to make such claims is declared in this statement. This is my body. I came along an Instagram this week that don't go and follow it, but this gentleman has multiple millions of followers and his whole account is based upon him becoming what he would call the black alien. And when I say this, what he's doing is he's literally tattooing his entire body black. He's removed his top lip. He's removed the bone from his nose. He's implanted horns in his head. He has had his eyes tattooed black. He has had his tongue split, dyed green. He's removed two of his five fingers so that he has three only. And the next portion of his surgical reality is he's going to be removing one leg. This is because he deems himself as having had an experience where he believes this is who he is. And that's staggering for some of us to believe. But when you understand, like when I'm coming from the place that I'm coming from right now, when I look at the theology of the body that's missing from our world, here's what I'm left with. We live in a world right now who hates their bodies. Not all of us, but many of us do. And many of us take it out by doing different things to our body because we don't inherently see the body as good. And only in our modern society do we have the ability, the technological ability to act like gods. So now before, if you thought that you couldn't play it out, but now, come on, how many of you know what I'm talking about? We can do anything we want to our bodies to a degree because the one thing that we still haven't been able to do is interrupt the actual creative order of things. We're trying really hard. But that's where we have to understand the, the theology of the body, to see our bodies as good. Now, when it comes to the subject of transgenderism, we see two things happening. First, we see the very real subject of gender dysphoria. In what was formerly known as gender identity disorder, statistics would tell us that this only impacted, listen to, listen to the numbers now, 0.01% of the population. And that almost 80% of young children who are usually in the bracket between two to four this is the majority of the group experiencing gender dysphoria as a psychological condition would in fact grow out of it through adolescence and into adulthood. So 80% of that 0.01% would grow out of it. However, in a recent study done by the UCLA School of Law's William Institute found this, and I read some quotes now. The number of teenagers and young adults in the United States who identify as transgender has doubled in the last five years, according to a new study. This study shows and estimates there are 1.6 million transgender people, 13 and older, in the United States. The study found that 1.4% of 13 to 17-year-olds and 1.3% of 18 to 24-year-olds identify as transgender. Five years ago, both of those numbers stood at 0.7%. Overall, the Williams Institute found that the percentage of adults... Now, this is, this is the telling perspective now. The percentage of adults who identify as transgender has remained steady at 0.6% since its last report in 2017. The rise in these numbers are indicating that there is another thing at work, and that is what I am calling 
cultural dysphoria. In her book, Irreversible Damage, author Abigail Schreier, a writer of the Wall Street Journal, who holds an AB from Columbia College, a Bachelor of Philosophy from the University of Oxford, and a JD from Yale Law School, and is a secular writer. This is what she says. Before 2012, there was no scientific literature on girls ages 11 to 21 ever having developed gender dysphoria at all. In the last decade, that has changed, and dramatically. The Western world, this is not happening anywhere else, it's the Western world where we're seeing this in such an uptick, has seen a sudden surge of adolescents claiming to have gender dysphoria and self-identifying as transgender. For the first time in medical history, natal girls are not only present among those so identifying, they constitute the majority. Where is this sudden uptick coming from? Why is this happening? Why are we seeing it, especially in the Western world? Abigail Faval in her book, The Genesis of Gender, concludes, and this is probably one of the most staggering statements I've read in a really long time. This is what she says. She says, once selfhood is abstracted away from the material reality and characterized by unfettered choice, the human body with its limitations quickly becomes an obstacle to simply be overcome. This is our current cultural Gnosticism and cultural dysphoria on display. Now, you may say, well, where does the Bible speak to this? How, how, does it? I believe Paul the Apostle comments on this issue. This is what he says in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 25. He says, therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. We are living in a world right now where many of us compare ourselves to other creations instead of living in the creator's plan and purpose for our life. Come on, we've created an app for it, haven't we? How many of you know when you get on social media now, who knows what's fake and what's real? Here's the problem with human contact. We don't have an app for changing who we are. Come on, you all walk into church looking like you do. With your crooked nose, with your balding head, with some extra LBs. Big feet, small feet, big hands, small hands, hairy, bald, long hair, short hair, blue eyes, brown hair, different skin tones. But for some reason, our world right now who has given way to cultural Gnosticism says that we should change it any way that we want to because we view our vision of ourselves greater than the vision of the creator who has made us. This is cultural Gnosticism. It's cultural dysphoria on display. So here's the question that we must ask and deal with today. Is there a path forward? What does this look like for individuals who would identify this way? What does it look like corporately for the church? To answer these questions, I want to make some statements that will be clear and hopefully extremely helpful as we move towards this hope that we have in Christ church. A hope that we are told in scripture does not disappoint. And I am challenging all of us to embody this faith that we have in Christ. 
Here's my question to us today. Can we be the church that sees a significant move of God as all of us submit to his plan and leadership in our lives? That's the question I want to answer today. I want to make two statements. And for this, now you are free to shout at me. And I'm going to preach at you for a second. And my goal now for the next few minutes while you're hanging on, I still need you to lean in with me. My goal is to offend all of you. Okay? So that way you all walk out of here not liking me. Then it's just easy that way. Number one, here's the first statement that I want to make. Remember, we're answering these questions now. To the LGBTQ community, God invites you into salvation and sacred surrender. Okay? Galatians 2, verses 20 to 21. This is Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I want to make this very clear that what scripture is saying is that when you and I call ourselves a followers of Jesus, we no longer live. You don't get to do it your way. No one's saying amen. (laughs) It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ that lives in me. The life I now live, everybody shout body in the body. Come on, everybody shout body. The life I now live in this body even with its, its idiosyncrasies and even with its perversions and even with its uh, inclinations and even with its desires, the life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. So I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So we've got to understand that God has a way for us. The goal of every one of our lives, the goal of every one of our lives, it does not matter who you are today, is faithfulness to Christ. He's made claim over us. All of us. And so for the LGBTQ person, you might be saying to yourself right now, why are you highlighting us right now? Why are you highlighting me right now? Well, go to last week's message. And we dealt with stuff there. All of us have our proclivities towards things. It's just, I've got to succinctly work with all these things so there's clarity. Jesus bids us to walk in the new way of life that he's provided for each of us. He calls you to live into the new identity that he has for you. So what does this look like? Well, for most, it looks like grace-empowered commitment to celibacy. I'm going to invite the piano up. There's a lot of conversation in and around the term gay Christian. And I'm going to be honest with you. I struggle with this term because for one living into their new identity in Christ, the title's actually missing the God glorifying piece, which would be celibate. To be a celibate Christian is to proclaim that your life is committed to submission unto Christ. In this area of your sexuality, it doesn't matter what the drive is. As Paul did in the Corinthians, he would say this to the Corinthians. He'd say, his grace is sufficient for me. I believe this is the theologically accurate way to approach one's new life in Christ. Now, I want to recognize a title that a man named David Bennett's going to use so that you understand where he's coming from as I quote him. He would be a gay celibate Christian, struggled with homosexuality, living this out, and now he's decided to put his life in the hands of God to live celibate. He writes this concerning, he writes concerning this issue. 
in his book, A War of Loves. He says, the Holy Spirit's moral empowerment in the midst of our present struggles with sin is what leads many to us, many of us to call ourselves celibate gay Christians. To say, I've been healed from all temptations of the flesh is to make the same error the Corinthians did when they thought they were already without a fallen nature. And yet behind closed doors, they were still indulging in sinful behaviors. That's when Paul says to everybody, hey, take heed lest you fall. He then makes a very salient point when he writes this. The opposite, listen to this church, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. It's holiness. And that's important for us to reconcile. And I know this is where I said, I'm going to offend everybody today because some of you are like, well, God should just heal this thing. Well, we could say that to anything. And for some reason, we still have to reconcile the fact that he chooses not to heal the thing. Because I still have to pray over people and officiate funerals of the person who died of cancer. Y'all see what I'm talking about? So the, the, uh, the, the healing of it, or the, the thing that we're looking at, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, it's holiness. He then writes this, the question of whether a gay or same-sex attracted person, whether they can be saved, reflects a complete misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course they can be saved. I want you to hear that today. For anybody who's going to take a snapshot and throw it on Instagram, right? Little tiny people, I'm saying, of course they can be saved. The real question is, will gay or same-sex attracted believers live the way the world encourages them to? Or will they give up their plans and desires to follow Jesus in celibacy or another arrangement he provides, marriage according to God's design as some have experienced? Even under the ridicule of friends, family, or even some members of the church. One more quote by, a, by an apologist by the name of San Albert. He writes, if marriage between a man and a woman shows the shape of the gospel, we talked about this last week, then celibacy shows the sufficiency of it. To my transgender friends, I want to draw your attention to what's probably one of the most powerful scriptures contained in scripture for you to take refuge in. It's found in Isaiah chapter 56, verses three to five, and it says this. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say the Lord will exclude me from his people. Pause there. There was a grouping of people called eunuchs in scripture. We can read about historically speaking. These people were people who were castrated for the sake of their job. That was uh, medically castrated, typically men, in order to be in a royal's household to guard a royal person. Um, They were sometimes medically castrated for other different reasons, but they would be designated as eunuchs or they were born that way. Okay? And we see that scripture. Jesus is actually going to talk about that, believe it or not. Some of us don't know this. I'll show us in just a minute. And so what would happen is if a eunuch decided to try to go to the temple and worship, they would be met with a sign that says, you're not allowed here. Just as much as others weren't allowed. But yet the Bible says this. Listen to what it says. The Lord, no foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I'm a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and holds firmly to my covenant. Oh, listen to this church. I will give them in my house and within my walls, a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. 
There's dignity, there's value in this. And the greatest fulfillment church that you will ever experience in Christ, I believe this so that I'm clear about it, is to live into the givenness of your created and designed body. But for some, if we're honest about it, and maybe even this church, due to decisions that have already been made, that may be a medical virtual impossibility, which I look to this section of scripture for truth and comfort. Matthew chapter 19, 11 through 12 says this. Jesus responded, not everyone can accept the saying, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of, a, because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. So I want to say to the LGBTQ community, those identifying this way and trying to figure this out, wrestle it out. God says to you, hey, come. Come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my burden upon you because it's easy and it's light. To the LGBTQ person, God invites you into salvation and sacred surrender. To the church, number two. God invites you into surrender and sacred service. Surrender and sacred service. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Y'all ready? We're we're getting ready to land this plane. Y'all with me still? Verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner... Found out about this. Now I love this moment. Bible center is code in this moment for prostitute. Okay? She wasn't doing things the way that she was supposed to. So she found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. So she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to begin to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, and he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Take it in. Like, hold this intention. Could you imagine being at this dinner party? This party changed quick. So Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. <laughs> Which I feel like Jesus was like, let's go. <laughs> so he says a creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one. <laughs> I love his answer. You ever been there before? You give a half-hearted answer knowing you just got proven wrong, right? He said, well, I suppose. It was his concession. I suppose the one he forgave more. You've judged correctly, he told them. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? All eyes on her now. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with perfume. 
And therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We see Jesus. He gave this woman a few very important things. He gave her dignity. And church, I want to submit to us today that Jesus shows us who we are to be as his body. He gave her dignity. He gave her worth. He gave her non-sexual intimacy. He gave her non-sexual touch. He gave her defense. He gave her connection. He gave her purpose. He gave her all of these things. And my question to us as a church today is, do we have the bigness to be able to do that? A dear friend of mine and Erica's passed away in 2020 from cancer. He was a man that lived most of his life in gay relationships up to the point where in his later 20s, early 30s, he was getting ready to transition to become a female. He tells the story. It's a brilliant story. If he walked into the doctor's office and they gave him a little bit of pause, so he had to wait a few days before they were going to be able to start moving forward with things. And during that pause, where does he show up? He showed up to a church of all places, last ditch effort. And here's this man, very effeminate, getting ready to transition. He walks into, of all meetings he could walk into at a church, a guy's meeting. And this is where God got real. He walked into this meeting and he would say through his testimony that when he walked into this place, he was met with the first non-sexual touch from a male that he had ever experienced. He said, those group of guys wrapped their arms around me. They gave me a hug. They said, sit next to me. Process. And that day he gave his life to Jesus. Hold on, hold on, hold on. He gave his life to Jesus. And through the rest of his life, he would pursue that relationship with Jesus. Oh, he would become an advocate for people and he would have a voice in the church like never before. The fact that we were gifted with him to come speak at our tiny little church then was absolutely insane as he would stand on stages of hundreds of thousands of people declaring the gospel truth that is found within it. But this man would tell you that he was left with an option, that he was left with, I either find myself in marriage the way that God has created it or I find myself celibate the way that God has asked me to submit it. And he would come to the conclusion that because of what he desired more than sex, it would be marriage that he would submit his life in. A man with these proclivities, a man with these desires said, I desire intimacy, I desire companionship, and I desire progeny, children. So he submitted his life. Him and his wife were married and spent years doing ministry together. He would have kids, he would have grandkids, and in 2020, the Lord would take him home. I tell you that story. Not to proof that change is possible, but to proof that with Christ, all things is possible. All things are possible. But what I see in it is I see that he was met at a church that had men and women who could care. So here's my question to us today, church. If Joe 
or Sarah says today, you know what? I want to give my life to Jesus. They're in the LGBTQ, transgender place in life. And they said, I want to give my life to Jesus today. I want to follow him and I want to lay down my sexuality. Here's my question. Do they have a church that they could work it out in? Oh, let's push it even further. Do they have a dinner table to sit at at Thanksgiving when friends and others reject them for their choice and for Jesus? It's the question. Yeah, less claps. Like, I don't know. Um, what does that mean for me? Oh, it means everything for you. We all say we want to see revival. We all say that we want to help people. Or do we just want to help the people that we're comfortable helping? Come on. Do we, just want to have, do we just want to help the people that were like, well, I can deal with this problem because it doesn't make me feel awkward. Oh, it's getting quiet in church in this third service of the day. This is where the rubber meets the road. We stand on truth and we operate in love at the same time. There's been no denial of that. But the question is, are we big enough as a faith community to be the healing and the hope that people need in their life? Are we big enough as a faith community to lean down like Jesus did and give dignity and worth and hope to somebody who maybe has never had it? Or are we big enough to invite people to the table and say that Jesus welcomes you here? Are we big enough for that? And listen, Jesus invites every single one of us to his table, but none of us get to rearrange how the table is done. That's Jesus's table. That's his space. He made that table. The Bible says he's preparing a table for us. So we don't get to stroll up to the table and be like, hey, Jesus, I don't like where you put this, 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 and this. He's like, oh, no, no, you can sit at my table. And I'm going to love you. I desire that all of you are here and all of our weirdness and all of our stuff and all of our things. Because we all got it. Come on, is anybody else like me? And I know what I've been saved from. I know what pit God took me out of. Oh, come on, somebody. Is there anybody that remembers their testimony? Is there anybody that remembers how good and faithful God is? Does anybody remember that you should have been dead? You should have been on drugs. You should have been broken. Oh, but that should have is gone because Jesus came in. Oh, is there any should have in the house today? Come on, everybody standing to your feet right now. I know it's not much, but all I have is a hallelujah. My story's different. Your story's different. We are all made different because I sat at Jesus's table and I didn't have much to bring except a mind that was confused and a body that it didn't know what to do with 
and decisions that I had made that I don't necessarily like, but I don't know what else to do. And I brought that as my offering to the table of Jesus. I laid that down and I said, God, if you could do anything with me, please do it. That was my offering. And oh, he said, son, like this woman, your sins are forgiven. And I'll heal you. I'll continue to heal you. Follow me. Live into me. Lean into me. Because he who began a good work is faithful to complete it. In Jesus' mighty name. And the church said... bow your head close your eyes with me God we need your grace when sin separated us you gave, you died for a wretch like me I'm saved by grace so in here today with every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around I want to pray a prayer I want to ask you if you've said yes to Jesus I don't care who you are I'm not speaking to a specific issue now I'm just saying have you said yes to Jesus and if not man I just want to encourage you to make this your prayer today he loves you he gave his life for you so with every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around We're going to all pray this prayer so we don't leave anybody out. Just come on as loud as you can. Would you just say these words after me? Everybody say, Jesus. I'm giving you my life. I'm giving you everything. My past. My right now. And my future. I'm submitting everything that I am to you. Have your way in my life. I'm sorry for doing things my way. And today, I am declaring that by your grace, I am following your way. Thank you for salvation in Jesus' name.